So welcome back once again to the Coffee and Heroes podcast. We're back with our weekly review show. We're going to be going over releases from the 23rd of June 2021. Tons of great stuff to get through. Tons of great stuff to spoil as well. So again, spoilers are plentiful. So just be warned. We will have, of course, the timestamps on there so you can flick past ones that... Maybe you haven't quite got round to reading yet, but as always, it's the, the terrible twosome tonight. So uh, your host is always Alan, owner and operator of Coffee and Heroes in Belfast, and I'm joined by Mr. Keith Miller uh, at the end of a very busy day. But how are you, sir? I am doing well, doing well. As you say, it is a busy day. Um, we, uh, I mean, as you, as some of our listeners know, I work in, in music uh, in Northern Ireland, and uh this week we last week we got the uh, a change in restrictions that allows outdoor events to take place and lifts the cap on those from 500 so uh, the festival that i'm usually involved with uh, up in limavady the largest outdoor music camping festival in northern ireland stendhal festival uh, is allowed to go ahead uh, this coming weekend i'll be with a slightly reduced capacity they're going to run a couple of events to try and make that capacity up but uh, Still, a week is not a long time for a team to put together a festival for 2,500 people and featuring 180-something musicians. So, uh, so the the evenings have been uh, have been fairly busy. Um, I work with the artist liaison team, so sending out all the contracts and uh, advancing the shows. It's all it's all great fun, uh, but uh, definitely leaves you a wee bit uh, a wee bit tattered at the end of the day. A wee bit stretched. I mean, I don't think you've ever been so grateful as for this new format that we have where we're talking about releases from a couple of weeks ago when you're obviously your time's a bit more contracted at the moment. So, uh, but again, it works out better this way as well. We're allowed to sort of talk more general spoilers and so forth. Although we still do tiptoe around things, which is always funny to me uh, because we don't want to spoil everything for people. But uh, yeah, it's going to be, as I say, going through releases from the 23rd of June. But before we tip into the comics, as always, we'll just have a couple of uh, a quick look or sorry, a quick look at a couple of things that interested us in the last week or so. Uh, it wouldn't be fair to start anywhere else but to say RIP to Richard Donner today, the uh, the Hollywood director who helped us believe that a man could fly. He was, of course, the, the man who directed the original Superman with Christopher Reeve. He was very well known as well for doing the likes of The Omen, for Lethal Weapon and so forth. But I think certainly in our comic community, he'll definitely be most well known for uh, Superman the movie. For sure. I mean, for me, that that Superman movie... You know the the Christopher Reeve 1978 Superman movie. I don't know if it'll ever not be the Superman movie. Uh, you know, all right, the special effects were amazing at the time. They're a wee bit hokey now, but Christopher Reeve was just such a was just such a Superman. So so well, so well directed and a and a lovely movie. And Gene Hackman as as Lex Luthor and and all of that stuff. It's a couple of good movies, you know. Um, and let's not forget the Goonies and Scrooged. Uh, you know, Goonies a a movie that that defined a child, many childhoods of, of of people of my age. You know. Yeah, well, I mean, just going back to Superman, I I read this story this morning. I thought it was definitely worth sharing. Just a very quick one uh, regarding Gene Hackman. So when when Gene Hackman was cast as Lex Luthor, he refused to shave his mustache for the role, and <laughs> Richard Donner basically turned up to the the set one day after like a week or two's break, and he had a mustache. And he said to Gene Hackman, right, if you shave yours, I'll shave mine. So the next day, Gene Hackman comes back to the set and he shaved his mustache. And he's like, right, your turn. And Richard Donner basically pulled off a fake mustache from his face. <laughs> I was like, right, let's start shooting. So uh, uh, he, knew how to, he knew how to get the best out of those actors. But 
didn't. Yeah, he had a good long life. Died uh, unfortunately at, at age ninety one, but his legacy will certainly live on for forever. He, he also directed uh, a lot of television uh, of that time, the likes of The Fugitive and The Man from Uncle, The Wild Wild West, Gilligan's Island. But uh, he did a, he did a bunch of Twilight Zone episodes, including probably the most the most lauded. Twilight Zone episode Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which he directed William Shatner in, uh, where William Shatner was a passenger in a plane, a young William Shatner passenger in a plane that saw this gremlin on the wing and uh, ended up having to be taken off the plane. You know, the plane landed early. Mm -hmm. It had to be taken off the plane, of course, and the the, uh, the inference was that was that Shatner was was mad and was, was hallucinating, but, of course, whenever they get off the plane, uh, they're glad they landed early because something had been tampering with the wing, or there was some problem with the engine. So, very, very good, uh, very, very good episode of uh, of the Twilight Zone. You should you should check that episode out if you can. It makes me think of a Simpsons uh, Treehouse of Horror episode where uh, I think it's Bart keeps seeing a gremlin on the side of the car. That's obviously exactly what it was, what it was based on. Yeah, <laughs> exactly what it was based on. And uh, I think later on, uh, Richard Donner also was the executive producer on. Uh, I think a couple of the X-Men movies, wasn't he? Yeah, he was indeed. He did it through his own production company, The Donner's Company, and he acted as a producer on Evan Given, Any Given Sunday, Lost Boys, another classic, uh, and then, as, as you say, X-Men in the year 2000 as well. So suffice to say, he had a long and storied career, and, uh, you know, rest in peace, definitely. So there was a great outpouring of, of, of thanks on Twitter today from, obviously, the whole comic community. So, you know, we, we certainly do honour him that way. Um, yeah, just, I mean, moving on just to a few bits and pieces, sort of comics-wise, just to sort of pique the interest this week, one of the first things I saw was the New 52 was trending, the, so the New 52 was an initiative through DC back in 2011, so it's basically, it was trending because it was the 10th anniversary, and the New 52, it gets a lot of hate, so it does for, you know, essentially wiping out 70 years of history and starting afresh, but... The whole core concept behind it was to give, you know, new readers a jumping on point without having to worry about all that history. And, it, you know, it worked for a lot of people. It actually worked for me. I was only getting into single issues very heavily at that time. And I bought every single, you know, issue one and then decided what to stick with. But I've spoken before at length about, you know, the Batman run, how good it is, the Bram Bucoletto Flash run, the Scott Snyder Swamp Thing run, the Jeff Lemire Animal Man run, the Gil Simone Batman run, or sorry, Batgirl run, for example. So there's a lot of good stuff there, but it was just interesting because Gil Simone essentially put up this tweet where she said, okay, enough time has passed. I will answer new 52 questions as best as I can. We haven't talked about it since then. Again, it was a sincere effort. There's no villains, so go ahead if you have some questions. And, and there's a lot of interesting stuff there. You can find an article on it on comicbook.com, and it actually has a link to the thread on Twitter. But, you know, she was very, very open and very, very honest. And, uh, you know, for example, the Batgirl run, I'm a big fan of it. I have the omnibus of it, and in it there's this technology that's invented that allows Barbara to walk again, you know, that, you know, she... Uh, was able to step away from Oracle and become Batgirl again. But the original pitch, apparently the uh, the people on high were saying, oh, we'll use magic and heal her and that'll be fine. But, you know, Gil Simone basically said, if we use magic, I'm not writing this story. You know, I wanted to give it to something, you know, I wanted to make it something interesting to the character and, you know, I didn't want her to just forget about being Oracle and all this kind of stuff. So it's a really good, really interesting little thread. And again, there's a lot of good New 52 stuff, definitely worth checking out. 
But uh, speaking of anniversaries and speaking of old artists, uh, <laughs> if you're listening, Clay, <laughs> uh, we had the news this week. So Rob Liefeld is going to return to X-Force for their 30th anniversary. There's going to be a new one-shot coming out called X-Force Killshot. Uh, he is going to write and draw that. Uh, I was curious whether this would be up your alley or not. Obviously, you're a died in the wool X Force fan, but you know, do, do you think the title's moved on? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, Rob Liefeld famously took uh, you know the failing New Mutants title um, and uh, and reinvigorated it and reinvented it as as X Force from from New Mutants '98, made it into a paramilitary team, a paramilitary force, uh, mutant force. Uh, under the the leadership of of the time traveling warrior Cable, um, who Liefeld created, but later turned out to be the time displaced son of Cyclops, uh, Nathan Summers, which was not something that Liefeld did, you know. But he transitioned the team away from being students into being soldiers. And Cable's the time traveler. Cable, his goal was to uh, fight his own clone. Strife, who was raised as Apocalypse's son. Uh, so that was the, 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 the gist of it. Now, it seems that Killshot will focus on Cable traveling through time to assemble five teams to take on his clone slash nemesis Strife uh, as he enacts a scheme that reaches across multiple eras. So it sounds, it doesn't sound like anything's moved on, really. <laughs> <laughs> Are you trying to say uh, that Mr. Liefeld is stuck in the 90s? Well, well, I mean, I certainly wouldn't. I mean, some of us, some of us are variously stuck in parts of the eighties and the nineties. Um, uh, so, all, and Killshot sounds like a very Rob Liefeld sort of title, but the, some of the characters that are joining the teams have been revealed on, on a couple of variant covers, and these include recent Liefeld creation, Major X. I think it was on two issues of that before I cut it. Uh, Shatterstar, that's good. Uh, Venom Pool uh, and Domino <laughs> will be in there somewhere. So I just I I don't know. I I don't know. I'm not sure. That was I'm, I'm... such a great exhale there at Venom Pool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I so I loved X Force at the time. Um, you know, I continue to love Cable and, and and what they're doing with him. But I just I just I don't know. I just don't know. We'll see. Well, it'll pop up in a previews book coming to you soon. I have no doubt, and we can uh, mm -hmm. we can talk about it more then. I mean, uh, I mean, speaking of previews, of course, we we just released our previews podcast there this week. Uh, just released it yesterday. Uh, so again, a nice deep dive into the July books for titles that are released in September. So that was a that was a fun recording. Tons of great stuff to jump into there. Loads of starting um. points. Loads of new series. Yes, absolutely, and Jesus, it looks like a it looks like September looks like a jammed month for uh, across the board. Um, another exciting milestone to uh, to rival Rob's. Um, our uh, our podcast is about to hit number one hundred and fifty. Uh, so that I mean, Jesus, that came around quick from number one hundred, didn't it? That's not too shabby at all. I mean, number one hundred point one and point two, I believe, or cover, uh -huh. or did we do a hundred A and a hundred B? I can't remember. Well, it was but... a, it was A and B. It was A and B, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, for that we we had a couple of uh, of really great creator interviews for you, and we're very pleased to uh, to announce that we have another special creator interview lined up for number one hundred and fifty. Now, right, Alan? That we do, and uh, I can tell you right now, it is X Force related, but it is not Rob Liefeld. I apologise in <laughs> advance, but uh, yeah, we had a we had a cracking chat with a, a top level creator, thoroughly, you know 
brilliant creator to chat to. We don't want to obviously give anything away, but it'll it'll probably be up by the end of the week, I would say, as, as Keith says. I mean, 150 is no milestone to sort of snark at. I mean, that's that's commitment right there, you know, and, and I think we've definitely been on at least 135 to 140 of those together. I think I had a couple of wee random ones at the start just to, mm. you know, bump the numbers up. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like Marvel and Amazing Spider-Man. But, it's, but yeah, it's fun because uh, I was listening to some of them this morning. I was going back and listening to some of the early interviews with Clay and with Chip Zdarsky, and you can hear our equipment wasn't quite as good, and you could hear that... The internet was a little shaky at times because those interviews we started doing right at the start of lockdown when it was, you know, strictly everyone was housebound and, and everything else. But those were tremendous fun to do. And it's a massive thanks to the people who did open up and chat away to us. You know, that obviously helped keep us going during lockdown as well as obviously doing the reviews and, you know, book clubs and, and different different things. So so here's to the next 150. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll catch Spawn yet. You know, it's, it's a 320 at this point. So we'll catch Spawn yet. But uh, I suppose the last thing, or the last couple of things, just to finish on, uh, we're recording this on the 6th of July, so this is finally the week that Black Widow hits the big screen. Uh, I did tease Vicky that I had tickets booked for tomorrow night at 8pm, but as Vicky is a dyed-in-the-wool England fan, she very quickly realised I had, you know, wound her up that it was at the same time as the England semi-final. But then again, if England get beat, maybe she'll have been preferring to go to see Black Widow, I don't know. And uh, you know, I would obviously always prepare to go and see Black Widow, but uh, I don't think I'm going to get a chance to see it until next week now. I suppose we have a stand all and everything else coming up. Mm -hmm. But uh, you are up to date on Loki, though, no doubt. I'm, I'm guessing you'll watch that tomorrow. Yes, I will uh, endeavour to watch uh, to watch Loki before uh, before I go too far uh, tomorrow. Uh, how are you getting on? Are you up to date? Uh, first three watched so far, so we're at the midpoint, uh, and then we'll probably watch four and five tomorrow. I'd say. Maybe watch okay. that before the footy kicks off, and then yeah, we'll we'll probably aim for Black Widow maybe sometime over the weekend because one of the the joys slash negatives of owning a comic book store is any time a new movie comes out, people are straight in. What did you think? What did you think? What did you think? You start to lose street cred if you don't see it straight away. So you know our street cred is very important. So we'll probably get to it sometime this weekend. I would say so. Yeah, that'll pretty much do for the the news and so forth for now. But we'll we'll jump into some comics and. And again, just uh, this is going to be the 23rd of June releases. Again, it is spoiler-filled. And uh, we'll we'll do our usual format. We'll go through some honourable mentions. We'll have a pick of the week at the end each. Pick of the weeks are going to be an interesting discussion this week. Uh, a very unique thing happened this week. I think so. I think so. It is, but it's all right. It's, it'll all be sorted in the end. Don't you worry. Don't you worry. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so for this week, uh, pull list totals. Whoa, we are both in the 30s. Jeez. Uh, so 30 titles for me. I had 12 DC. What actually brings my numbers down is Marvel. This is this is this is steady at the moment. My lack of Marvel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to start plotting a graph and uh, put you to gym. <laughs> Only the two Marvel uh, this week, and then I had 16 indie. So once again, over half of my books are indie. Uh, what about yourself? What were your numbers? Uh, I'm a squeak ahead of you again this week, Alan. I've got 31 titles. Two in a row. 30. Uh, nine of them are DC, so that's fairly healthy. I mean, that's fair, would you say? Almost a full third of my pull list is the, the DC stuff. I've that's got 10 Marvel and 12 Indie. Yeah, that is a very even split in general. You know, there's there's not a lot of differences there. But yeah, I don't know. As I say, just I, I wasn't reading the Hellfire Gala and I, I haven't really been on Spidey recently, but I've no doubt it's going to pick up. And, and the two that I did read Marvel-wise I actually really enjoyed. One of them was very close to a pick of the week, but... 
we'll we'll certainly get into that a wee bit more as we'll go through but but again we'll go through the honorable mentions just to kick things off and uh we'll start with dc as per usual uh the first one i thought was worth bringing up and having a little chat about we chatted about issue one we chatted about issue two well we're now up to issue three of robin <laughs> so this is uh this continues to be a great title i think this is joshua williamson on writing duties gleb melnikoff on art and i just think this has been a great exploration of damien as a character you know it's it's not too serious a book either, which I really like. Sometimes Damien can be seen as a very grumpy character, you know, big chip on his shoulder and, and nothing else. But there's actually moments of humor laced throughout, which I really like. And and that's despite the very real life or death threats that hang over the characters. Mm. Some great scenes, some great dialogue that focus on other characters' perception, not just of Damien, but of Batman. And it's really interesting to see those scenes where... And again, this is where the chip in the shoulder comes in, where Damien will always feel overshadowed by his shall we say, more famous father? Well, uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, I mean, I, I, I love those scenes. I, th- I thought they were the best scenes in the book, uh, the fleshing out of, of Connor Hawk, you know, as the other side of the coin to, to Damien. They're both sons of well-known, famous justice leaguers, of billionaires, of uh, folks who have themed cars and, uh, and caves, and dads who are themselves in some ways analogs of one another. Um, if not, if not for their opposing histories, but you know, Damien and, and and Connor, which lead to an inevitable fight fight scene between the son of Batman and the son of the, the Green Arrow, these two could easily be mates. I would say, you know, it's uh, you know, it's almost like Damien finds a, a, a kindred spirit in Connor, who has been part raised by the, the League of Assassins. Um, and that's that. That kinship is something that Damien has been missing in this series, and I think he's been feeling it with the absence of his best buddy, John Kent. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you look at the the Super Sons titles of the last few years, the Peter J. Tomasi. You know, they were they were thick as thieves, the two of them. So they were. But but again, what the the main thing I'm loving about this book is I know Batman's Spectre looms large over it, but uh, you know we we got to the last page of this book, and and Damien's basically in trouble, and. He's almost calling out to like his father to come save him. And I was really worried that Batman was going to come into this yeah. book. And I say that as a massive Batman fan, but he's got more than enough books to keep him occupied. Uh, so I'm glad he hasn't appeared here just yet. And I love the last page reveal because it's a character we haven't really seen in the comics recently. But it's also a character that makes sense to be in this book, but also keeps the focus away from Batman joining the book. Mm, I mean, I... I would say that the first time Batman appears in this book, it'll be the end of the book. The book will be over. You know what I mean? That'll be the that'll be the safety net that Damien doesn't know that he's operating without. Really, he doesn't know that he needs. And uh, and yes, you're absolutely right. I think the appearance of uh, of Grandad, who presumably saved Damien, but if it wasn't him, who was it? Obviously, there's maybe someone else working with him. Uh, I thought that was that was great and bound to happen on an island that's called Lazarus Island, no? Yeah, you'd almost uh, been waiting on Raz al Ghul's appearance or, as Neil uh-huh. Adams says, Ra's al Ghul. Uh, but mm-hmm. we've all watched the Christopher Nolan movies, it's Raz as far as we're concerned. But <laughs> but that's a good point. Actually, I never thought of that. I mean, in my mind, I had just assumed Raz had saved him. But as you say, it's sort of done in shadow and maybe it was just someone saved him and delivered Damien to Raz. So that's actually a really interesting point. So definitely something to keep an eye on. But, but yeah, great great writing by Williamson through this really clean cool art by Gleb Melnikoff and again we, we've said it before if you're not on this book yet 
why are you not on this book yet <laughs> so uh yeah that is robin number three and speaking of williamson uh he seems to be everywhere this week which is never a bad thing uh next up we have infinite frontier number one so this is going to be a six issue miniseries and he knocked this out of the park with this there, there was a zero issue which mm-hmm. you know, I was just about to say, is it the first issue or second issue? Because we did have Zero to kick off Infinite Frontier. Well, I look at this as its own thing. I mean, this was an awkward title to order almost for me in a way because Infinite Frontier Zero was almost like DC Rebirth Zero. It was like the, setting up the blueprint for where the DC Universe was going. And we had loads of people on Infinite Frontier Zero, but I didn't know if they wanted to continue with Infinite Frontier 1. But everybody seems to have because this book is getting mm. a lot of love at the moment. You know, it... In a weird way, it arrived with little fanfare because people thought Infinite Frontier was just a one-shot. But this definitely could lay claim to being one of DC's most important books right now. Totally. I mean, we've talked about it before, but I mean, Joshua Williamson is the DC showrunner post-death metal. So this this can really be considered the spine of, of DC's current skeleton, its current direction. You know, there could be a lot of a lot of branches coming off of this. I, sorry, I mixed my metaphor there between skeletons and trees, so uh, apologies. <laughs> it all works anyway. But as well as Williamson writing, you've got uh, the artist Sermanico on this, whose work I've really enjoyed. He he did a, a three-issue miniseries between uh, Liam Sharps and Grant Morrison's Green Lantern Season 1 and 2. It was called Green Lantern Black Stars. But he's also been doing uh, Justice League Dark Backups with Ram V. I mean, th- this is great stuff all around. This, this is a really good creative team. Yeah, it was Germanico who is uh, the alias for Alejandro Germanico Benito Gonzalez. Uh, did some fantastic work on Justice League. I think it was with uh, Robert Vendetti mm-hmm. back a year or two ago. I mentioned it to you at the time. I was like, Jesus, that artist is, is some operator. So uh, there you are. It's glad to, I'm glad to see him you know, front and center here. Is he, do you think uh, Germanico is going to be in the whole book? I think so. I think this is going to be a six issue with, with Germanico and... and, and joshua williamson on it so at least Lovely. i very much hope Lovely. so i've seen mitch dread so mitch dread does the covers for infinite frontier and he's he has showed off a couple of them so far as well so it, it seems like a settled creative team at least i hope it is anyway when it when it comes to the title itself you know the basic promise uh, the basic premise sorry has a team formed called justice incarnate they're essentially characters we all know and love some characters that didn't exist before had died in you know various timelines and so forth but Essentially, the Justice Incarnate are all from different Earths in the multiverse. You know, for instance, we have Alan Scott, Green Lantern. We have Calvin Ellis, Superman. Our universe is Barry Allen, Fleischen. And they're all in one team and are tasked with patrolling the, the multiverse to make sure a big bad threat, you know, similar to, you know, what happened with Perpetua and the Batman Who Laughs and, and Dark Knight's Death Metal, should not be allowed to happen again. Yeah, I mean, I nearly feel like Barry is the point of view character here, you know, a character that Joshua Williamson is very familiar with following his, his seminal run on The Flash. And with Wally being set up to star in The Flash book, uh, once the current Quantum Leap arc is, is over, Barry is totally set up to be our Earth's ambassador to the Incarnate team. It's a clever move, I think, and it clearly indicates that Williamson's love affair with Barry Allen isn't at an end just yet. Just can't let go. I mean, despite doing a longer Flash run than Tom Keane did Batman run, he just can't let go so far. I mean, he already did that uh, that one-shot speed metal as well through Death Metal. So. But yeah, with issue one, I mean, there's a lot of setup and, and heavy lifting done in this issue, but it's it's done with maximum efficiency of storytelling. There is a lot established in this first issue and a lot set up for moving forward. I was just, I was very, very impressed with it. Mm, I mean, 
I think the big story in this is brewing with the Flash and the Earth Omega stuff and the Dark Side stuff. Uh, and the, the Cycle Pirate feature in there kicks us back towards the Crisis in Infinite Earths. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah. And there's some interesting stuff brewing with the resurrected Roy Harper as well. Obviously, Roy died in Heroes in Crisis, killed by Wally. So there's some, I think there's some interesting stuff going on there. What is going on there? Yeah, I mean, certainly with Roy, he, he's back, but he almost feels like he shouldn't be back. So he's sort of hiding out through a lot of this issue. So oh. he is, but clearly they have bigger plans for him. So, but yeah, I'm, I'm expecting big things from this series. You know, I think Williamson, as you were saying before, I think he continues to prove he's the current architect, you know, between the exciting status quo being established in the DC universe. So great book moving forward. You say universe, but I think you mean universes, no? You might be right there. I'll <laughs> I'll give you that one. So yeah, Infinite Frontier number one of six. Another great title this week. Uh, speaking of events that came and went with little fanfare, uh, this week saw the release of Event Leviathan Checkmates. Um, this is a sequel to 2019's Event Leviathan. This was a, a Brian Michael Bendis scripted Alex Malev mystery title. And it barely made a splash. It was it was called Event Leviathan, so you sort of thought it was going to be like the big event in DC, but it was almost like a, a, a backseat title, for lack of a better term. And and this was actually a shame. I really enjoyed it. It's, it's sort of noir stylings and look at it at a different side of the DC universe. So enter the much-delayed Event Leviathan checkmate, and the good thing is it's from the same creative team. So, you know, Bendis on writing and Malev on art. I believe this title was actually a slight victim of, you know, the DC continuity shuffle, the pausing of titles during the pandemic. It's finally arrived, and I, I gotta say, if issue one's anything to go by, it was worth the wait. You know, I, I love me some detective noir in any <laughs> scenario, and I love it within the DC universe, and it's really interesting characters. You know, it's it's Lois Lane, it's Green Arrow, it's The Question, it's Tally Al Ghul, and Director Bones. You know, this this title definitely has my attention. Yeah, and don't forget, uh, you've got Manhunter in there, Steve Trevor, the mysterious king, who we don't know quite who that individual is yet, and a dash of Damien, of course. So, I mean, I think with this issue, there's some nice sort of, I guess, table setting on Bendis' part here. Uh, and he's, he, he loves doing the talking head thing, so he can, he can do it all day here, and he does it well. There's uh, some backstory as to how Mark Shaw got involved with Leviathan, and that then ties into the old silencer stuff, uh, you know, and all of that sort of stuff. But I'm looking forward to seeing how he actually took it over from the inside, took it from, from Talia. Plus, uh, Bones and Trevor seem to be all over the place this week. I've uh, seen them in at least two different places. Oh, yeah? Mm. <laughs> I think uh, Director Bones was in Infinite Frontier, and Steve Trevor was in something as well. But I can't remember what it was. He was hanging from a, he was hanging from a, from a helicopter doing something. I can't remember what. Well, he's definitely going to be involved in the next title that I chat about, but we're getting ahead of ourselves there, you know. <laughs> but yeah, just wonderful art through this, you know. Alex Malev's a you know, seasoned veteran mm. at this point, you know, Dave Stewart on colours. You know, there's an absolutely stellar um, title page, which is almost set, like, on a checkboard that shows off all of the main uh, characters in the storyline. And it just helps set the tone and elevate the issue. I think, you know, I think it's it's... It's a real good sign that the team has remained the same on this book despite the delay. Yeah, uh, it shows a real passion for what they're doing on this side of the on this side of the universe, and that will itself lead to, uh, I think, a real contiguous, solid story. Yeah, I mean, uh, it 
it shows that they obviously have faith in the story they want to tell and i do think prior knowledge is perhaps recommended of leviathan you know it was there was quite a lot established in that you know issue one here certainly does its best to catch up but i think you might be slightly confused jumping in but event leviathan itself is available in trade at this point so you can certainly catch up and then jump on to the uh onto the single issues i would say it's probably a good idea to go back and have a look at event leviathan remind yourself of leviathan's agenda they're kind of like i guess mark shaw is kind of like a the, the man who is now leviathan former manhunter is kind of like a robin hood-esque spy master he, he's brought down all of the other spy organizations in the dc universe in order to try and open up all secrets and sort of even the playing field for the little guy uh, as so you can kind of get behind his agenda a wee bit yeah um but then you know you start to go into the stuff that's like sam lane and lois and they the, the messenger the message that, that that sam left his daughter before he died and, and all of that sort of stuff so probably there's probably some nuance here yeah definitely i mean certainly with the likes of sean and so forth as you say any good villain is the hero of their own story you know it's not just wow i'm mad i'm mad i'm going to take over the world sometimes they do make some you know interesting points they maybe just go about it in the wrong way but yeah, it's uh, another six-issue miniseries this one's going to be, and it has the potential to be a bit of a sleeper hit for DC and definitely one to, to keep an eye on. Uh, one I just wanted to finish off on this week with the honourable mentions for DC. It's, it's just myself on this, not Keith, but this was uh, Wonder Woman Black and Gold number one. So DC basically are continuing their anthology format in the wake of Batman Black and White, Superman Red and Blue. So I'm happy to, you know, give Wonder Woman a try. I don't really have the same connection to Diana that I have to Clark and Bruce. Although I do have a massive soft spot for Bran Azarel and Cliff Chang's New 52 run. As well as Wonder, Worth, uh, Wonder Woman Dead Earth, which was my favourite graphic novel of last year. You know, so for this first issue we have stories from the likes of Ming Doyle, Becky Cloonan, Amy Reader, John Arcudi and Rand Suk amongst others. As with any anthology, you know, there's always stories that will stick out more than others, some that are stronger and some that maybe just, you know, float over you a little bit. I did particularly enjoy the AJ Mendez and Ming Doyle story, which follows a trip home for Diana to see Hippolyta and her mother complaining she never comes around enough. You know, it's a surprisingly sort of human and emotional look at how gods interact and still crave the family contact just like us mere mortals. Another one that was really strong in it as well was John Arcudi and Rand Sook's tale, which was called I'm Ageless, which has the question being asked, of course by Bruce because he can't help but be a bit of a dick sometimes, uh, basically saying how can Diana possibly resonate with humans and care for them? Because of her lifespan, she will always outlive anybody she gets close to or anyone she ever meets. But there was some really good storytelling in this one, some wonderful art here, and the, the story actually packs a really, really good punch. I thought it was a solid opening uh, issue. I'll, I'll definitely be sticking with it. There's going to be uh, next month you have stories from Mariko Tamaki and Jamie McKelvey. You have Stephanie Williams and Ashley A. Woods, Rachel Smith. It also seems to be very heavily a, uh, a female creator-led book as well, which can't be a bad thing. And I ended up with this rather beautiful Joshua Middleton variant for it as well because I love me a variant. So... Yeah, really enjoyed that as a as an anthology series, and I think it's going to be another six issue, just the way uh, Black and White is for Batman and Red and Blue is for Superman. So, Wonder Woman, Black and Gold, number one. So, that'll do it in terms of the DC Honourable Mentions this week. We'll move on to the Marvel side of things. You may hear Keith's voice a little bit more than mine here, but 
I did read some good stuff for Marvel, even if it was only two titles. But <laughs> you kick us off. What's what's the first honorable mention? Uh, one awesome title that you didn't read, I think, was Guardians of the Galaxy number fifteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so under under Al Ewing, I mean, it's not the first time I've talked about this. Under Al Ewing, Guardians has become one of Marvel's most consistently great books, and that's no surprise given Al Ewing. And number fifteen isn't an exception to that that particular trend. I would say that. Probably Al's run on Guardians is as important to this series as anything else that's gone before it. Um, so this plays as kind of a prequel to The Last Annihilation, which is the upcoming crossover between Guardians and Al Ewing's X-related book, Sword. And the two series are great companion pieces to one another this week. The last page of this issue is a doozy too. Um, there's, there's, It's another sort of last page turn and you go, okay, right, so... They've really set the scene for The Last Annihilation. So the Guardians have expanded their ranks and uh, they're now uh, sanctioned to to protect Cosmos. Um, you know, and, and so as a result of that expansion, they can be in sort of a load of places at once. Um, you know, they can be they can be sort of they can be sort of everywhere. Um, something strange is happening to uh, to Ego, the living planet. Uh, and one team led by Rocket is investigating that. And uh, there's there's dialogue between Rocket and Herc that is just golden and pure uh, and pure Al Ewing. Uh, it's you know at one stage uh, you know uh, the uh, Rocket says, "Yep, it's uh, you know it's, it's ten days since Ego the Living Planet turned into a black big black insect like egg. No change since then, apart from all the gawkers." And there's some talk about survey teams and uh, from the Rim Worlds and one of the characters who hasn't been about asks about the Rim Worlds and uh, uh, Rocket is like the Galactic uh, Rim Collective Quasar. After the Annihilation War, a bunch of worlds uh, uh, got out in the out in the Rim, decided to get together, stronger trading links, common law stuff like that. Hurt goes, ah, so it's like the European Union. <laughs> and Rocket goes, not even a little bit, Hurt. Why's everything got to be like an Earth thing for you people? An intersystem trading alliance? Yeah, we got one of those too takes up one land mass on one planet so exactly the same <laughs> very 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 good stuff and meanwhile our uh, our freshly enlightened star lord and rich rider are on a diplomatic mission to the sword station also great dialogue between the two old friends one star lord who is now a little older than the other as a result of his uh, his cross-dimensional adventures and uh, it's all proven a little bit too much for the slightly more morally inflexible rich working with the super scroll star lord last issue inviting dr doom to join the team and everything that the mutants have done because this follows uh, planet-sized x-men and um, we talked about that last uh, last episode and he ends up going toe-to-toe with magneto on the sword station which is just fantastic stuff uh it brings up a lot of a lot of history a lot of old history and it's really just you know, Star or uh, Rich Rider Nova taking out his frustration on uh, on Magneto, and they end up having a really good chat uh, over the heads of it. But uh, but yeah, the the last the last uh, the last page is a doozy as we figure out what is happening to Ego, the Living Planet. And I gotta say, props to uh, props to Al Ewing for his uh, his British music related uh, ship naming. The ship that the larger team uh, Rockets team are on is called the Almond, and the ship that uh, the ship that uh, that Star Lord and uh, Rich Rider are on is called the Somerville. So uh, 
a nice wee shout out to Mark Almond and to Jimmy Somerville from the Communards uh, <laughs> there. So I don't know if anybody else picked that up, but uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Cool. Guardians of Galaxy 15 from Al Ewing there then. So moving on to one I actually did read. Uh, I know I only did read two, but one of them was actually a number two as well, which is Fantastic Four Life Story number two. So this is written by Mark Russell, art by Sean Isaac. And this is where the format for me of Life Story really starts to show. You know, with issue one, there's only really so much we could, th- they can do with it. You know, is it set in the time frame with the characters at the right age? We know and love them from. Fast forward 10 years, though, and everything can change. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's it. I totally agree. It's hard to see how the real-time engine makes too much difference in the first decade, but you really start to see the good of the format by issue two as we hit the, as we hit the second decade. Well, that's it. So we're into the 70s with this one, and I thought there was some great stuff here. You know, you had problems with Reed and Sue's marriage. I mean, Namor, you scoundrel. Is this a storyline I don't know about in the Fantastic Four in the 70s? Has this always been a thing? Yes, absolutely. The, certainly the, uh, the trysts between Sue and Namor and the, uh, the sort of romance between them has, has always been a thing. Namor's, Namor's uh, patented passion is very much in, uh, in, uh, in opposition to, to Reed's slightly more cold, logical nature, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, it is. It is very much a thing. It's just never been quite taken to this degree before. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Um, I mean, you've you've other great stuff in here. You know, Sue pursuing women's rights in the seventies. You have, you know, Reed and Victor Von Doom's first meeting. Reed losing the respect of his peers. You know, he sounds more and more like a desperate man the whole way through this. Even though he has this mindset that he needs to save us all from this unknown threat that he knows is out there. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the alterations they've made are cool. The the, the Namor Sue stuff, you know, taken to that degree, for example. Um, the, I guess the, the woman's rights thing is reeling against how Sue was portrayed at the time, which was very much the, you know, the meek housewife and mother, um, you know, in the in the original the original way round. So that that's that's really nice to see in that that being kicked back into something probably a wee bit more uh, realistic for the the foremost uh, superheroine in the world at the time. Um, the Doom stuff didn't really do it for me. I mean, I guess the end result is similar and that's what counts, but I feel like the origin story of that rivalry was much more poignant and long-lasting in the, in the original origin. And, you know, so I felt there was something maybe lost there, but I mean, I felt this was definitely more of a Reed and Sue book and a little less a Ben and Johnny book. Uh, but we do see the evolution of Ben and Reed's friendship as that origin story also started out differently in issue one. Yeah, I mean, they. I thought they achieved a lot in this. You know, they did cover uh, a, a big period of time. But, you know, for example, there's a, a good early scene where Franklin, uh, Reed and Sue's son, is sitting there and says, is Dr. Richards going to join us for dinner, Mommy? And she Ooh. says, Daddy, Franklin, he's Daddy. But by the last page, she says, you'll see Dr. Richards on the weekend, Franklin. He says, Daddy, his name is Daddy in his little grumpy <laughs> teenager way. But, yeah, really strong, clean art the whole way through this. I thought it picked up the pace massively. I mean, I liked issue one, but I actually really loved issue two. So uh, I, I think this has the potential. I don't know if it'll quite reach Spider-Man levels because that was something really special. But I'm really happy the direction this is heading in after issue two. So Fantastic Four, Life Story number two. And that is covering the 70s. Uh, the next one up is a title that I jumped onto. I knew very little going into it, especially as I've been collecting Immortal Hulk 
which I was finally able to get my final issue today, by the way. <laughs> so the countdown is on. I need to read 49 issues before issue 50 comes out so we can talk about the finale when it does. Um, so I haven't read that just yet. But, you know, why, why don't you t- give me a little bit of a history lesson then? Gamma Flight, this is a, a brand new number one. Yeah, absolutely spins out of Al Ewing's Immortal Hulk. Um, Gamma Flight had the one job, and that was to find and stop the Hulk. But whenever... I suppose push came to shove they sided with hulk and the gamma mutates uh and and i guess the gyric and the human world henry peter gyric and the human world intend to make them regret that so puck absorbing man titania uh doc sasquatch and dr charlie mcgowan and also a, a horribly mutated and changed gamma radiated rick jones um are fugitives from pretty much everybody is how it goes yeah i mean it i thought it had a really fun team dynamic you know lots of sort of you know humor laced in there snarky comments to each other very much like they're a family uh but then of course a couple of you know a couple of emotional moments in there as well but i really like the art of it as well i'll, I'll definitely stick with it for the for the duration yeah i mean it's 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 a great it's a great team you've got puck who i've been really interested in since the alpha the early alpha flight days John Byrne off of late days. Uh, Doc Sasquatch, who is a combination. It's it's uh, Doc Samson, the, the green-haired haired, uh, mutated uh, psychologist, gamma psychologist, in the body of uh, Walter Langowski's Sasquatch. And you have the husband-wife team, villain team of Absorbing Man and Titania. Uh, so that's that's going to be quite interesting. But it does a great job of, of telling the story, I think, without spoiling the final arc of the Immortal Hulk run, which is what we're on at the minute. And I think the goal of the, the, the comic is to establish the team and their character dynamics with each other and what they'll be looking at and focusing on going forward. There were some fantastic moments. There's a similar kind of, of body horror. There's some developments with, with Absorbing Man's powers. Originally a great Thor villain. And, you know, he was able to, he's able to take on the material properties of anything he touches. Uh, but what was interesting here was he took on the purpose of something he touched rather than the material properties. So he touched some sort of I think it was a, a war machine of some kind, and he took on the properties of a war machine with the guns and stuff, which is a totally new twist on absorbing man's powers, which I thought was really, really clever. And he also gets himself a great anniversary gift from his wife to Tani in the form of a, an adamantium ring, which is, of course, a handy thing to have whenever you can absorb the materials of any, uh, the material properties of any object that you touch. Very much so. If Cap ever needs a spare shield, he knows where to look. Actually, let me stop you there. Uh, Cap's shield is a mixture of adamantium and vibranium. <laughs> I was curious if you were going to correct me on that. <laughs> I should know better. But yeah, fun first issue. I'm really looking forward to actually, you know, getting stuck into Immortal Hulk. As I said, just I had to backtrace a couple of issues. It was 11 and 13, and one arrived on Monday, and the other one arrived today. So I can finally pick up on that. But yeah, fun first issue. As I say, I'll definitely stick with this anyway. This is uh, Gamma Flight number one. So. That's the Marvel side of things covered. We jump on to the Indian. And obviously, indie-wise, we did have quite a lot of uh, great titles this week. So there's a, there are a couple to discuss here. Uh, first up, I thought Philadelphia 14 was very strong. This was, this was up there in Pick of the Week territory. This is from Rodney Barnes and Jason Sean Alexander, Louis NCT, and Chris Mitten. And, you know, without going into the story too much... Jimmy Sangster Jr. trying to check, attack Joe, his erstwhile lover, as she brings him a wine glass full of blood, thinking that it will sate his cravings. This was one of the best written and illustrated scenes in comics this week. 
Yeah, very, very poignant scene. You know, she goes on to try and to try and help him, pours him a like a glass of blood in a wine glass, and just, you know, I love you, love you too, never hurt you, never ever, as his fangs appear and he's gonna go to your neck, and he's only stalked by his father. He's like a drug addict, you know. It's it's showing that real uh, vulnerable side of vampires, you know. The, his 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 lost his his lust for blood, you know, his his, his addiction on top of, of everything else, you know, it's just over everything else, his, his love that he's just professing. Uh, it's, it's incredible. Definitely. There's, there's, there's always elements of the wire in this, you know, um, uh, you know, with regard to the, the drug side of things and the, you know, the, the, the urban dereliction, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, look, Rodney Barnes storytelling, it's just so multi-layered, multifaceted. Just love it. Love it. Yeah, and again, what's always great about it is we talk about it all the time, which is efficiency of storytelling, and you know, there's tons going on in this issue. So there is, there's them trying to make Jimmy actually human again. the The issue itself kicks off with some brutal, brutal scenes as uh, Abigail Adams is leading an assault on the city, determined to, you know, no longer be tied to her husband, as or as she refers to him, the mediocrity that was my husband. Yeah, I mean, as you say, totally brutal. It's quite clear that the humanity of philadelphia soldiers are not stand no chance whatsoever yeah you have john adams sort of switching sides if you will you know in a, a classic trope there but you know he's showing regret for how he treated abigail you know this uprising she is leading might just be his fault you know it's not not so much his fault i don't think but certainly her reason for doing so is him you know in order to establish her own identity separate from that of being that of the wife of the the former wife of the second president of the U.S., you know, so it's there's a, there's a lot going on there, but also, you know, a relationship that's lasted, you know, 250 years or whatever. It's a, I suppose it's a fairly complex thing. Yeah, and then there's some great scenes in there as well with uh, Sangster Junior and Sangster Senior, as you know, was as Jimmy basically talks about how if uh, well Jimmy Junior sort of says like you know if this doesn't work just kill me. It's almost like his dad is sort of speaking to him, going like you don't get off that easy, son. <laughs> it's just sort of reading between the lines but yeah a lot packed into this issue and it flows effortlessly and and as you'd expect looks fantastic so philadelphia number 14 uh next up is the old guard tales through time at number three so this is the uh the anthology series for the old guard this is basically i don't want to say plug in a gap because that sounds quite disrespectful actually but it's, it's basically you know filling the space between certainly the second proper arc and the third proper arc and the idea being that you have different creative teams coming on to each issue different writers different artists and you get two stories per issue and with this one we were getting stories from the teams of Bram michael bendis and michael avon weming uh, with takisoma on colors and then you're also getting a story written by Robert McKenzie and Dave Walker with art by Justin Greenwood, Daniel Miwa. So I think you might have more to say on this one than me. This was the first issue in this series. It didn't really resonate with me as much as the other two. Um, maybe, maybe not. I really enjoyed the first, uh, the first story, uh, Pashendiel by, uh, by Bendis and, uh, Ivan Oming, Takisoma, it was a great story about Andy and uh, how you know Andy uh, ends up in this uh, ends up in this ladies' room. Uh, well, there, there's someone locked in the ladies' room. It's a, a restaurant, a pasta restaurant in Cleveland, and uh, it turns out Andy knows the the owner of the restaurant, uh, Zeus, and uh, that's why she's hiding here. And as we we move through the story, we see a little of Zeus and Andy's history together through uh, through World War Two. 
uh, and what happened there. And it's not until the end that it sort of becomes clear that Zeus is actually Andy's son, uh, which I thought was really, really poignant. He, she's hardly seen him since he was born. She's popped into and out of his life, his life being so relatively short, you know, so short relative to Andy's that, you know, his entire life can almost pass. And, you know, she'll only see him once or twice, you know, but that's not a, it's not a huge amount of time for her. But uh, it just that really resonated with me, I suppose, maybe against the backdrop of, of uh, the original Highlander movie where the immortals there, one of the, the I guess, one of the, the mechanics there is that the immortals can't have children. Uh, so they've never addressed that in Old Guard before. So this, I think, is the first time that's been addressed. And no, actually, it's not. It's not my mistake. Book book had children uh and he watched them he watched them grow old and die and tried to get you know so so but yeah it was it was really nice to see that uh, to see that addressed um the the second issue the second story didn't really grab me quite as much um you know we have uh we have nikki and book uh who are out uh, doing a bit of uh, they're 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 on like not a killing spree but they're 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 assassinating. They're 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 killing some people that have done some bad things. And uh, meanwhile, Nikki and Andy are in San Francisco as the moon landings happen. And uh, I suppose it's about that relationship, you know. And it's about a it's about a bit of a uh, bit of a uh, I suppose not a they're having a wee bit of a lover's tiff, you know. But a lover's tiff for immortals can maybe last a wee bit longer than <laughs> <laughs> you can be stubborn you know? for a bit longer. Yeah, can't you? absolutely, maybe. Yeah, but I mean, uh, no, I still there's still a, still a lot to love in this. There's still a lot of emotion, a lot of uh, a lot of poignancy. Yeah, I mean, it was don't get me wrong, it was it was pleasant enough. It just didn't leave a massively lasting impression for me. But that said, that might be because the first two issues were so so strong. So, uh, and also, if you had a Highlander on your Coffee and Heroes podcast bingo card, you can check that off. So, <laughs> probably every time an issue of the Old Guard comes up, to be fair. Or an issue of Berserker is probably or an the issue other one. Of Berserker, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, we should get those bingo cards made. I think so. I think so. You know, make uh, points, make prizes, and all that. Um, so yeah, we'll move on then to something that is killing the children. Number seventeen, another title that always deserves a mention, often elevates to t- uh, to pick of the week. Uh, but this issue actually contained the first for me. I mean, this is one of the most nihilistic, darkest titles on the shelves. I actually laughed during this issue. Yeah. I was sitting reading this on the sofa. Vicky was sitting beside me and I just started chuckling away. And she was like, like sort of gave me a double take. Like, are you watching or are you reading something that's killing the children? And it's something as simple as Erica standing up for herself and kicking another character in the nuts. This just, that just really tickled me. Um, mm, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is one of the strongest issues so far uh, on in a, in, a, in a series that is full of strong issues. So last issue, we sort of Got a, started to get a real sense of where Eric is from and and uh, the start of her journey to towards the Eric slaughter we know today, but just the dialogue, the pacing is just perfect. The sort of the, the, the Jessica Erica bond, you know, it feels real and it feels like that, you know, it's it's yeah, the organic I guess, and you know the start of that relationship with Aaron as well, uh, especially as Erica goes into these trials. Where the, the where the house of slaughter intends to force fear on her and, and and all of that so it's just really really precise and fluid um and uh you know the moments the moments impact and we we learn 
more about this world inside the house of slaughter um yeah i i i love this arc yeah that was a particularly strong wordless scene just as eric is being led through the house of slaughter and you start to see all the different rooms you see you know the dining room the library the computer room you see what looks like a room that wouldn't look out of place in the godfather movie with you know some people sitting around obviously very important having a meeting you you maybe weren't meant to see that but i think the art's getting better the more we get through this issue as well i mean that was an absolutely glorious opening splash page of erica just sitting in front of this giant painting you know she's obviously waiting to be seen but yeah we continue to delve into erica's past here her induction into the house of slaughter this this will never not be an interesting story we were always looking forward to this arc so we were and this was a really another strong issue yeah, I mean, and that you know the, the the development of the relationship with Aaron across these two issues, which is tragic because we know Aaron is dead. Uh, you know, from our the, the previous arc that he sacrificed yeah. himself uh, in Archer's Peak. Um, but you know, as he comes around at the end of this issue, you know, we we understand that that Aaron is being mean to Erica, the new girl, because everybody else is mean to him, and she's the only person that he can be mean to mm-hmm. because. He doesn't have any brothers or sisters. All, all the other kids are white masks, whereas they're black masks as a result of the, the particular mentor that, that, that brings them in. And they suck, and everyone else is old and mean, and Eric is like, I'm young and mean. And uh, he's he's just like, I just don't die okay, do you promise? She's like, yeah, I promise. So there's, you know, he, he she's the only one he can bully, but he's also she's also maybe his only possible friend. Yeah, he also had that absolutely wonderful sort of flashback scene of Erica in the closet as the the monsters are attacking her family and, you know, just just a really, really strong book. I mean, I, I genuinely cannot keep the graphic novels on the shelves at this point. I seem to be adding the trades of something that's killing the children to my order top-ups <laughs> every single week and clearly word continues to spread and just how good this title is. I mean... I would possibly put forward the case, and and I say this as a huge Batman fan, loving the work he's doing there, loving Department of Truth, loving Wind, but I, I genuinely think this might be Tinian's best work at the moment. Although Nice House in the Lake might have a chance, but it's a bit early. I would I would say that, you know, we've said it before, Batman's always going to sell, no matter who's on it. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and it, it gets good, and it, it gets middling, and it gets bad, but it's always going to sell. It's a, it's a brilliant advertisement for everything else that Tinian's doing, mm-hmm. his own his creator work or his indie work, you know. So, so yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you totally. Yeah, so, again, if you're not on it, get on it. And, yeah, we'll endeavor to always have the trades in stock, given how much we bang on about it. So that's something that's killing the children, number 17. Uh, next up, we have Chariot, number 4, Brian Edward Hill on writing, Priscilla Petrati's on art and marco lesco on colors and this got adult very quickly uh this always seemed to me like a saturday morning matinee type show like knight rider or you know something like that maybe a hint of you know maybe sexuality or a hint of you know adult themes but oh, th- this got adult quickly yeah, really it really did but i won't say it wasn't a wee bit unexpected for me because there's there's been a seediness about it that uh, and I'm not to say that I'm not not saying that any adult scene is seedy, but there's been that uh, there's been that that feeling of, of sexuality about the about uh, the, the Jillian, the, uh, the 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 spy, the, the the artificial intelligence in the car. But uh, I mean, this is just I love love this series. It's Jim, 
He's an ex-con. He's been trying to turn his life around. We've discovered that his son needs a new kidney. In America, especially, you know, with a, a private health uh, healthcare system, that's that's the sort of thing that's going to end a middle-class family. Never mind, you know, a, 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 a man and his girlfriend here separated. You know, so he's been looking for things to fix up to to try and make the make some bucks. And it was an old sports car. Turned out to include the subconscious mind of uh, of a, a spy named Jillian, who who you know has been stuck there since the eighties. Her evil. 70-year-old de-aged ninja sister has kidnapped the son because she wants the car. And I guess Chariot 4 is our second, you know, we've got our second act here as Jillian trains Jim for a one-on-one showdown with her sister. You know, this 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 ex-con, this sort of bum, he's not well at himself, he's not mentally tough, he's not physically tough, so she takes him into the into the world, the, the AI world of the car where time passes differently, a la The Matrix, I guess, and trains him. You know, he's really been through the ringer. Um, you know, it's just been thing after thing. So, you know, he, in this case, you know, it's his son. It's it's something he loves more than, it's what he, he loves more than anything. So he's willing to put everything on the line here, you know. So some real intense training, you know, it's, it's but then there's the, the, the sort of darkness of Jillian confronting, uh, confronting uh, Jim's girlfriend, Sadie. you know. Yeah, Sadie and... Uh, She's in the two places at once, and we see inside the Matrix that, you know, obviously Jillian has seduced Jim and is, is, is having sex with him. And meanwhile, she's saying, you know, Jillian's saying to Sadie, you know, maybe you didn't want him, but maybe I'll keep him. Maybe, you know, you'll not you'll not be the same man whenever he comes out, uh, you know. But then don't forget that Jillian also mentioned briefly in issue two that she wanted a body of her own. So there's... There's a danger here, uh, so it's I don't know. It's uh, but yeah, it's I, I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was just another brilliant tension-building story. Big anticipation for the, you know, for the the match between Jim and the sister. Uh, you know, who threw him out the window in their first encounter. Uh, so yeah, this was this was top quality. Great visuals, great color, great writing that drives the story. It's and and character development too. Um, so we're really we're we're heading into the. We're heading into the danger zone, yeah, as Kenny Loggins would say. Well, I would say we're heading into the final straight, which you know, <laughs> for a driving uh, driving title, you see what I did there? Yeah, oh, I mean, I see what you did there. I mean, very much. All the players are in place here. Relationships are being tested and stretched left, right, and center, and and the mythology has definitely been built upon. The only thing I would say is that there's a lot to wrap up in one issue. I I do kind of hope that this is going to continue with perhaps a second volume you know the great titles from awa just keep on coming but the ones that seem to do well and are building a mythology they do go into a volume two you think year zero you think the resistance so hopefully this won't be the end for this title and you know all this world building and mythology building they've done they can carry it on to perhaps a second arc so we Um, shall we shall wait and see fingers crossed here's hoping yeah well uh we'll get you on the twitter keith and you can just start really bombarding brian edward hill and just saying don't give up on this title <laughs> so yeah that's chariot four of five so the the trade won't be too far away on that if you've missed out on the singles and aw are always good about putting the trades out at that nine pound price point as well so that is chariot number four of five uh what else have we got here uh if you want to throw a few words out for the blue flame number two christopher camwell i don't didn't have enough issues due to some latecomers to Blue Flame, so I'm waiting for my top up. So I'm number two in it. Oh, 
okay. That's that's uh, yeah. This was a good one. I mean, I you know all of the great things I have to say about Christopher Cantwell. Uh, I know you're not reading Iron Man. There's another one for the bingo card. Um, <laughs> you know, but we definitely had a wee bit more of a. We had a, I guess, a weird contemplative, slightly psychedelic take on 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 a kind of Green Lantern, uh, along with a you know side by side with a, a grounded vigilante story about a character with the same name and apparently the same identity, the Blue Flame. So there's this mysterious narrative that we're trying to piece together about this uh, this vigilante and this, this street-level vigilante group that has just been uh, mowed down in a, in, a, in a gun incident. And meanwhile, the Blue Flame, the cosmic superhero, has been, uh, I guess, imprisoned by a higher society in the cosmos, and they are effectively taking him as the example of an earthling and uh, and I guess the 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 Earth hinges upon upon his defense of it, you know. So uh, so it's really it's just it's as yet we're still trying to to push piece it together. Blue Flame's been held in a cell by I say this alien race that's judging humanity and whether it should be wiped out to protect the rest of the universe. He doesn't know why. He learns about other alien races and eventually how much of humanity's history is written down relative to all of these other races. And we we start to understand how it might be difficult to argue that humans should be allowed to live at all. And then, you know, the, the, I don't know, you could get a wee bit frustrated. We, we see, um, you know, the vigilante character. He's one of the, the only one of the five members of the Night Brigade that hasn't been killed and he's hanging on for dear life. He's in a ventilator and his sister, you know, who we hadn't seen before is introduced and, yeah, I mean, they're definitely coming together in a really compelling way, and I'm just not sure what that is yet. Because I have a lot of faith in Cantwell, I'm good to go, you know. And, you know, Gorham does a great job on both the alien, the cosmic art, and, you know, the more grounded, human-focused stuff. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of shock and anxiety here, and, you know, the, the characters' faces really, really show that. So it's it's... I think it's it's building a case as a series, I guess, with a bit of a, a dark message about humanity. Um, and I just don't know how it's going to end. I just, uh, But it's very, very compelling at the minute how the, the story's been put together. Uh, so we'll we'll see. We'll see. There's a, there's, there's, there's a lot of stories still to be told there, you know, but there's, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, good, okay. good stuff, good stuff. Very, enjoy, very much enjoyed issue one. As I say, it was just a. It, it seems to be building a wee bit of momentum and a wee bit of a reputation. This title, because I had a few people, as I say, come to it late, and we'll always give up our own titles before we we bring our own home. In most cases, anyway. Uh, maybe not all cases, but yeah, that's for another time. But yeah, I'm waiting on a number two for that, and I'll definitely be continuing with it. Uh, just a couple to finish off with. First up. Uh, get your bingo cards out again. Seven Secrets number nine is being mentioned, and that's Tom Taylor on writing, Daniel DiNiculo on art, and Walter Bamonte on colors. And to go into anything in this issue would be a spoiler in itself, but the, the main crux of this issue is that essentially a new keeper of the secrets has to be elected, someone who knows what every secret is. And Eva is the one who is uh, put forward for this. So one by one, she's being presented by all of the secrets. And that all leads up to a last page revelation, which is a secret that changes everything. And <laughs> I don't know how Tom Taylor keeps doing this to us. We, You know, 
he's almost like the M. Night Shyamalan of comics. He just loves a twist on the last page, but his twists never feel forced. They are always intriguing. He's done it in Nightwing. He's doing it in this uh, issue by issue. And this was just fantastic. Like, this was the epitome of uh, get to the last page, and you're like, no, where's the next issue? And the art's fantastic. Uh, Danielle de Nicolo on this. You know, and it just, it's just, it's got that lovely sort of manga touch of manga in there as well. It's just not, not quite too much. But there's a lot of cool stuff going on with, uh, with Amon as well. Yeah, um, flexing his the, muscles. The seeker, yeah, and the seeker headquarters. There's a great fight scene where we just see how capable he is, uh, physically so, and uh, and also I guess with regard to his political machinations as well. So there's a that that story's not over yet. There's definitely still a, still a danger there. So. Uh, yeah, really enjoy this. I, I totally, uh, yep, I'm totally behind everything you say there. I mean, it says it all that the last four words of this issue are what the actual fuck. <laughs> so <laughs> I think he sums it up well in that exact moment what the audience is feeling. So yeah, Seven Secrets number nine. Again, first trade is available. Again, we bang on about this title all the time. Can't recommend enough. One of the best indie titles out there and definitely in my top three personal favorite indie ongoings at the moment. Uh, next up we have Undiscovered Country 13 and this is the uh, the creative writing duo of Scott Snyder and Charles Soule and then you have Giuseppe Camoncoli on art for this and this is the start of a brand new arc with issue 13 and it definitely took a little bit of a turn in this one. It uh, we're, we're introduced to the next zone so every single arc seems to be focusing on a different zone of this sort of new america if you will or this closed off america that our that our characters are going through and the next zone is called possibility it's a region that's built on creativity from folklore to virtual reality and they set up the the crux of the story here in that our main players are tasked with creating something that will endure the test of time if they want to escape this uh this zone it did take a slightly longer hiatus than expected. You know, it's, I suppose, maybe not surprising. Obviously, Scott Snyder's working on Noctera. He's getting his own uh, company going with Best Jacket Press and so forth. So it, it took me a little moment just to sort of sync back up with where we are, where we were in this. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, it, it was also a real, uh, like a crazy, it seems like a real crazy, crazy zone. You know, the, the third land would explores, explores culture and art which is going to be, you know, the culture and art of America and Americana is going to be something else. You know, even that map was a wee bit, a wee bit crazy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I thought it was a great balance between the action and the talking. Um, we've got a, a, a bit of a focus on Valentina Sandoval. She, she, it seems she, I, I mean, uh, she, it's, a, it's a different background than, than what I thought. You know, she seems like a very edgy character, but she grew up quite, quite rich and, and sheltered. Um, so yeah, we'll see what, we'll see what happens here. Cause they always have a great, great, uh, I guess, penchant for, for dragging the characters backstories into the, into the main story. So the, I mean, the illustration, uh, the, the, the Cam and Coley and, uh, grassy side of things was just crazy. So much, so much stuff going on in the background and, and that, but, uh, but yeah, and we've got another, we've got another identity for, uh, for uncle Sam, uh, as well. So. Adulty Sam is yeah. a man of many faces, many faces. He certainly is. So yeah, as you say, it was a bit of a reorientation issue. Uh, I love the I love the uh, the back matter stuff. Um, we're now seeing uh, we're now seeing how the ceiling looked like from from beyond the the you know the borders of 
of you know from all around the place, you know, and and a totally mental uh, a totally mental end, which I think is going to be a wee bit uh, wee bit meta, I think, if this goes ahead. Yeah, you know, was, we've got a discussion of superhero comics. It was interesting in a way because I was chatting to Stephen about this in store, and he was talking about how he was really enjoying picking up a wee indie title, you know, seeing how America had evolved, this and that. A nice little break from your superhero books. So, what turns up in issue thirteen? Superheroes. Yeah. <laughs> so he wasn't a hundred percent too sure with that, but yeah, this is a series I continue to enjoy. I have full faith in this creative team that they're in for something fun and special with uh with story arc number three. That just leaves us with our picks of the week, and this is gonna get interesting, people. So it had to happen sometime. Uh, we're gonna kick things off with my pick of the week. And when I say it had to happen sometime, I mean a pick of the week from one of us that the other one just wasn't overly fond of and i must say given that we're both long-term readers of this crazy little art form we love i was surprised that this wasn't for you keith i have to say i was equally surprised alan equally surprised um and it's not like it didn't uh, give it a good run i read it i read it first time out as you know i don't put particular books to the top of my list i tend to to uh, try and, and even out between marvel and dc and indy to make sure i'm not staying in one universe all the time and mm-hmm. and i'm a, a big fan of uh of uh delayed gratification you know so sometimes my favorite book could be at the middle or at the bottom of the pile but uh this just came up in the pile and i read it and i texted you i was surprised you did I texted you and uh, and then i read it again the following morning i was i thought maybe i'm maybe i'm tired maybe i'm missing something here uh but it, it just still didn't quite come up in my estimation but please Go ahead, convince me. I'm going to convince you. So what we're talking about here is Batman Reptilian. So this was a a brand new number one this week. This comes from the team of writer Garth Ennis, who's writing a solo Batman tale for the first time. He's he's written Batman before, but that was predominantly in his Hitman series for DC Comics. And the artist on this is Liam Sharp, although we do learn in a particularly heartfelt opening that the story was originally met, uh, meant for Steve Dillon, who was the artist on Preacher, long-term mm. friend and collaborator with Garth Ennis. So it is interesting that this story was obviously planned out a good few years in advance and, and Liam Sharp took over after Steve Dillon's untimely passing. So the story goes that something far darker and more menacing than even Batman has Gotham's villains running scared. They actually have a monthly meeting in this. There was a great line about, you know, Batman shaking down one of the, the grunts on the street. And he's just like, did you bug them or something? Uh, but they basically come up with a monthly meeting where they come up with ways to try and kill the Batman. But something attacks and leaves Riddler, quote, split from chest to crotch. And they nailed Penguin to the ceiling. Batman learns of the night it began when Gotham's murderers were possessed and all turned on one another. And he quickly realizes that he is not the one lurking in the shadows anymore. Something more sinister lurks and it is stalking the criminals of Gotham. You know, whatever is causing the violent flashes of debilitating madness in his most ruthless enemies must be pure evil. I mean, for me, there's many, many reasons to love this book. And the main one for me, and the reason I was always looking forward to this, is this is a throwback to a simpler time in Batman mythology. You know, there's no Bat family here. There's no reliance on the latest gadget that Bruce Wayne's endless finances and R&D department can cook up. No talk of prep time and how Batman can succeed in any situation given the right amount of prep time. It's just a tale of a terrible thought that stalks the rooftops and alleyways of Gotham, terrorizing Gotham's criminals and seedy underbelly. You know, we even have the return of the, the original status quo of Alfred being Bruce's sole confidant. 
everything about this screams Vertigo era comics to me. You know, there's the almost expressionistic art style that calls to mind Sandman, Arkham Asylum vibes. You know, the mean streets of Gotham here, they're rendered with absolutely no hope. There's a lot of stuff in the recent Batman books that's all about building the city of tomorrow and Gotham can be as good as Metropolis if they put effort into it and this and that. No, Gotham is the polar opposite of uh, Metropolisness. Metropolis is the city of hope of the future. Gotham is basically its ugly cousin, for lack of a better term. But uh, this this glorify this this Gotham, sorry, it's a glorified slum, and it may actually be beyond redemption. But still, the Batman thinks he can turn it around. You know, his focus is singular. The way the book opens, I mean, the opening scene for me is one of the best written Batman scenes for such a long time. And given that we're in a golden era for Bat books, that is no small statement. You know, there's a scumbag lawyer who's, you know, making a speech on the steps of the Gotham courthouse about his, quote, wrongly accused client who's a brute of a man. He's a, he's a heavyweight boxer and how the justice system has found him not guilty. It is assumed that the, the charges were rape and murder of these two women. Some of the uh, journalists mention these two names and they basically say, you know, in case you wanted to know their names and the lawyer flits it off, sort of goes like, oh, my client didn't do anything. So, of course, those names mean nothing. Though, I mean, it is interesting. I would I would stop you there with the murder because at one point Batman does say that uh, those girls will never be the same again. Well, they might, so not, be think, they might not be alive I, again. I think, they, <laughs> I think they survived, but certainly there was something horrific done to them. Yeah, well, essentially, the, the, there's a lot of the violence in this that is implied but not overtly shown to you. I mean, even uh, when you know Batman attacks this boxer, which I'll sort of get to in a second, it's done in one very clean sort of bright red panel, and then you're sort of left to imagine almost what he did. But uh, yeah, the, the the lawyer talks basically about how the court threw out evidence that was provided by a vigilante. But what's really cool here is, you know, Batman's listening from afar. He's never seen fully, but he's in shadow and darkness. And as reporters continue to question the lawyer, Batman just silently approaches. He squares right up to the brute and calls him a coward. He's able to use his words to get under the skin of the defendant. And ultimately, he takes a swing at Batman, which, of course, heavyweight champion or not, Batman's able to avoid and take him down with a counter and then walks away going, self-defense. You know, self-defense indeed. You know, we have some great stuff with Bruce and Alfred in the Batcave. You know, it just reminds me how much I miss Alfred from the main Bat titles at the moment. And the rest of the issue is taken up with detective work and interrogation on Batman's part. The book, you know, it's obviously, it's DC Black Label. You know, it's as adult as the Batman titles come. And it's a far cry from the admittedly excellent work the likes of Tinian's doing, Mariko Tamaki and Tom Taylor doing on the character of Batman. And this is the advantage of Black Label for me. They, they can tell adult stories outside of continuity and just focus on telling a great story, not have to worry about lining up with other books or continuity or the consequences for characters. And then here is where I think we're really going to split, though, because I love the art in this book. <laughs> I know you're not much of a fan, and, and, and I'm sure you'll go through it in a second, but for me, I love it. It's all shadows and dark colors and exaggerated characteristics for the villains. You know, the grime of Gotham practically leaps off the page in this. Batman's always framed as a dark thought, that intimidating presence in the mind of criminals. In a sense, he's essentially the boogeyman in this, and again, it's a far cry from the character in the mainline Bat books. But I know that the art is one of the the bones of contention for you. You're you're just not a fan. No, I'm I'm not. Uh, I think that's that's one of the that's exactly as you say. I think it's one of the things that that really put me off. As you, you know, I'm a big fan of sort of cleaner art. 
and you know this is this is the opposite of that to me uh you know there's i mean i, I wasn't a huge fan of uh i wasn't a huge fan of uh what did you call it batman damned either mm-hmm. you know i thought it was kind of meh um and honestly art wise i'm not a huge fan of arkham asylum either uh yeah i think it's dave mckean on that this conversation uh, is over what this is the first time i'm hearing this um it just that's you know, a dagger through my that's like me turning around and saying mark bagley's an average spider-man artist what is going on here i didn't say that uh, <laughs> i didn't say that dave mckean was an average artist i said i wasn't a big fan of the art yeah, and i think i think so much so much is not seen in the darkness and yes i know that's the point but it's a visual medium so i want to see stuff yeah, but it leaves it. You you see enough. You you get the idea, the impression. It's it almost it suits the character. Like, don't get me wrong. If you tried to do a book like this for Superman or for you know Nightwing, you know who's all about the brightness and the light and so forth, it wouldn't work. But I just think it works for this character, and I think it would work for say maybe a Punisher, for example. You know the 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 great thing about Batman. The reason I love Batman so much as a character is I think he's the most durable character in comics. You can do the All Ages Batman Animated Adventures title. You can do the, you know, the, the, the All Ages still to a degree, but maybe with a hint more adult themes of Tinian and, and, you know, detective comics and stuff like that. But you can do full out, you know, this is basically a crazy rich guy who beats criminals up, you know. Yeah, I mean? yeah, you can absolutely. do the full adult, you know, you know the, the full adult title. And that's what I love so much about this. You don't get a lot of books like this now. Because they're yeah, so mean, focused on trying to sell to everybody, but see these adult-dominated books, and I'll admit, Damned was a disappointment. It's mm. it's an it's an okay book, but I don't think I've went back to it in a couple of years now. But this, I just thought this was outstanding. It was so so good. I get. I mean, I guess I'm the same with. Uh, I guess I'm the same with movies or TV shows where you're you're always looking for something because the lighting's wrong. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or or they're trying to be be atmospheric. Yeah, I just, I just don't, uh, it just doesn't, it just doesn't do it for me. Uh, unfortunately, the the art ways it doesn't, and and even whenever you do see it, you know some of the faces are are a bit like caricaturish, a wee bit, uh, you know, and that's a style as well, you know. Uh, and I, I mean, it, it works in the likes of of Judge Dredd, you know, and and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff, where which is, yeah, I guess, where Liam Sharp came from, uh, but it just. As I say, just the art just didn't just didn't do it for me. Just didn't do it for me. Uh, I'm afraid with regard with regard to the story. I mean, I, as you know, I'm a huge fan of continuity. Um, you know, I, I can I can enjoy books that are out of continuity and do enjoy books that are out of continuity. But but I guess I'm really in, I'm really enjoying what's going on in Batman and Detective at the minute. And maybe it's just that that is this is so counter to that in so many ways that uh, I'm just not. I'm just not. Uh, just didn't. Uh, just didn't grab me. Just didn't grab me at all. Um, That's an absolute fair point. You know, it, it, it is always going to be a problem. I think with any comic because, as you said, it's such a visual medium that mm. if the art doesn't strike a chord with you, then you're going to struggle with the book, no matter how good the story is. I mean, but I mean to go on to the writing. I mean, you know, you can find Garth Ennis elsewhere in Comic Land with a fun frat boy, you know, humor based <laughs> title of Marjorie Finnegan, but. For me here, he's all business and he's determined to not waste his opportunity at writing a pure Batman title and leave his mark on the character, you know. The fact that Ennis was able to take Batman's oath to never kill and frame it as a threat rather than a weakness 
is exceptional. It actually adds to the Batman <laughs> mythology. It's a thing only a man from Belfast could do. But you know what I mean? Like, there's so much of it as like, you know, oh, Batman won't kill, but these villains will kill or whatever, so you're nowhere near as bad as them. But he actually makes it a threatness, which is great. You know, the, the quote on the back of the book is, I'm far, far worse than that multicolored rabble. I will not let you die. And that is such a bone-chilling threat. So it actually uh, turns Batman's yeah. oath on its head, which I think is great. But, but yeah, I mean, I've I've read this issue four times now. You know, that's almost unprecedented for me, given the, the sheer volume of titles we, we pick up each week. But I just love getting lost in this version of Gotham. You know, the atmosphere, as I said before, just drips off the page. And for me, anyway, issue two can't come quick enough. So absolutely essential for me, but it's not on the Miller pull list anymore. No, it's it's not. <laughs> and you know what? I think you might you might maybe have have nailed it there a wee bit. Maybe what's missing what's missing here that is something that that I need is an element of hope. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, I think that's what that's what superheroes embody. Batman, yep. any others, you know. Uh, and I just I just didn't you know although Bruce is continuing to do what he's doing you're saying that, that Gotham is it's just not a yeah I think that's maybe where it is as well mm-hmm. that that complete that darkness and that lack of hope I mean I, lo- I, I do love dark dark stuff occasionally but there's there's got to be something in there got to be something a, a chink of a chink of hope uh, and I just didn't didn't see that there despite the I don't know you know so so uh, so yeah, I'll uh, I'll keep up to date on what's happening with uh, with Batman Reptilian from your good self, but uh, but yes, it's it's off the pull list in favor of uh, in favor of other things. I'm afraid Batman Reptilian for me is going to be like Iron Man for you. We're just going to keep wearing each other down. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that was my pick of the week anyway. That's Batman Reptilian number one from Garth Ennis and Liam Sharp. And what pray do tell is your pick of this week, sir? For my pick of the week, I am going. I'm sticking with uh, with uh, Marvel, uh, as I did last week, and I'm sticking with Hellfire Gala, as I did last week. Uh, so uh, an X book. But what we're going for this week is uh, Sword Number Six by Al Ewing. Uh, here he is again, and uh, Valerio Shidi on uh, on art. So Sword has been the uh, the mutant space book, the cosmic book. But how it how it I guess delves into the the Hellfire Gala side of things uh, is really really interesting. It takes place after Planet Sized X Men, uh, which we talked about we talked about last week, and the the absolutely uh, I guess game changing stuff that happened in there with the terraforming of Mars. And uh, so they use sword here. I'll use it. Ewing uses sword. Uh, he's been building this up to. I guess the point where he was gonna he was gonna drop the big one, uh, but you know the fact that he's he's bounced off planet size X Men to to what he wanted to do, which was the intergalactic acknowledgement of of mutants, and uh, there you know what, what what he does in this book is uses sword in order to launch the mutants into intergalactic su- supremacy. They've they've had their display of Earth Dominion and expansion, and now it's time to make the mark on the universe at large. And they do so by the new planet, the newly terraformed Mars, which they have uh, they have they have renamed the fourth planet from the sun rather than the third planet from the sun, and now staking the claim as as it being the dominant planet in the solar system. And 
you know, Abigail Brand and friends, they stand before the Galactic Council, uh, you know, from the, the most important reaches of the universe. And uh, there's some good stuff in here. This is where it crosses over with Guardians of the Galaxy, and you see some of the Galactic Rim collection and so forth. And uh, effectively, they 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 tell them that you know if you're if you're going to deal with the soul system you deal with us and uh, we see a callback to previous issues with this uh, material this mysterious material called mysterium and uh, abigail brand introduces the the galactic representatives to this mysterium and it's worth how you know how even a like a tinfoil um thickness uh sheet of this is more more uh more protective and, and and more structurally rigid than uh, than anything they make their spaceships out of and and all of this stuff and uh, effectively the mutants create an entirely new currency with this mysterium that's going to change the entire economic landscape of the universe they're really doing that's everything it. they can to just leave earth <laughs> behind aren't they? yeah absolutely <laughs> if if the galactic you know rim collective accept the mutants terms so it's exactly what they did on earth with the with the drugs that they were making from the from the Krakoa plants, so it's all about it. Really, is all about this this leverage and this flex, and it's it's absolutely incredible. Um, we've got Doctor Doom in here. Um, obviously, Doctor Doom going effectively. You know, why do I care? You know, why should I be interested? And there's some great uh, dialogue between uh, Doctor Doom and Captain America immediately after the. Uh, immediately after the the hellfire gala you know them doom seeing them both as faces of their nations uh you know and uh, and all of that stuff and uh, it, it's just it's it's just really incredible the the footprints that have been laid here the political game of chess the the mutants of krakoa having full control of that that chessboard is just is just phenomenal it's just it's really changing the it's just changing the status quo, and the the issue is absolutely beautiful. Uh, Valerio Shidi covers so much stuff, you know, Earth-based landscapes and and space-based landscapes and backgrounds and portals and everything is just beautifully drawn and and beautifully coloured by Marte Garcia, and it it's it's great. But one of my favourite one of my favourite parts is we finally have Storm in the place she was supposed to be storm who was i think i mentioned last time that i was sort of half hoping for this but storm who was raised as a you know was raised on the, the you know this as a, as a as a street urchin in the streets of uh, of egypt you know and, and and then became a goddess in africa was treated as a goddess who you know was the the first lady of the x-men really uh you know who married uh, King T'Challa, the Black Panther of, uh, of Wakanda, the Wind Rider, finally becomes who she's supposed to be. As Storm is is given the role of Regent of Mars, and there's there's some real Warlord of Mars stuff going on here. So this was this was really fantastic. This was I just I love what what Al Ewing has has done here. Um, you know that the seeds that he's planting, and we also. We also have the return of Wanda Maximoff for the first time in a long time, uh, and a, a touching, uh, a touching moment where Magneto reveals that he still views Wanda and Petro as his kids, even if they aren't his kids biologically. 
you know, and uh, and all of that stuff. So it, there's there's a lot of stuff brewing here. Um, I don't know, Ewing, Al Ewing, I think is fast to me becoming the best writer that Marvel has. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with Immortal Hulk, with what he's doing on Guardians of the Galaxy, what he's doing on Sword. He's, you know, watching him write Doctor Doom and Captain America there. I, I wouldn't, I would be, I would be fairly happy to see Al Ewing and Captain America. Uh, which would be, uh, you know, after Tanahishi Coates, but he's already doing too much. <laughs> I don't want him. I don't want to spread, spread Al too thin. You know, the stuff that he's that he's done on 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 Valkyrie and and all of this. You know, so there's he's so moving much moving over to Venom, isn't he? Come the end of the year. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, it's like he's covering all the bases. You know, it's it's just a beautifully written book. It's a gorgeous looking book. There's some great, massive cosmic level sort of surprises and gasp moments and some some really lovely quiet character moments that just really is getting me excited for the future of the Marvel Universe and the Cosmic Marvel Universe and the X-Men Universe, uh, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, so it's it's just so good. Um, and Storm's big entrance and her future role as the voice of Saul is awesome. Well, it's good to hear that after, you know, the sort of epoch-making issue that was planet size x-men that your first delve back into the x world that lived up to expectations after that status quo shift yeah no you know you mentioned that that there's there was very much a, a risk there um but uh, yeah i just i think it's it's just I'm, I'm placing dr doom you know where he should be you know amongst the the, the, the uh i guess the, the the regents of the of the planet and, and and the big villains you know it's just it's great stuff it's great stuff so don't know if you're reading this at all, um, but uh, I would I would say pick up the first six issues. Yeah, I mean, planet size, uh, based on how good it was, you know, the the temptation is indeed to jump into the X Men universe again, and and I do got to bump those Marvel titles up, you know. Mm, so, you definitely do. This wouldn't be a bad uh, this wouldn't be a bit bad shout for you. There might even be an issue still on the racks from last week, so you never know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I, I again I really enjoyed planet size X Men, and it, it definitely intrigued me. And, I like what you're saying there about creating their own currency and so forth as well. Like, they really are doing absolutely everything. It's almost like cutting out the middleman or something. It's like, yeah, we don't need humans anymore. Let's just get rid of them. It's just, it's, it's big stuff, like, it's big stuff. Yeah, very much so. So, that is Keith's pick of the week for the 26th of June, then, which is sword number six. So, we'll just finish off as we always do with uh, just a, a couple of titles that we're looking forward to for the next new comic book day, which is the 30th of June. So, Three titles down here. I'm talking about all my lack of Marvel here, and here two out of three of my most anticipated are Marvel. So uh, this week sees the release of Better A Bill number four. So this is part four of the absolutely excellent Darren Warren Johnson title. Uh, so the penultimate ch- uh, chapter of Daniel Warren Johnson's Righteous Horse Thor epic. When Better A Bill's quest brings him and his friends, Scourge the Executioner and Pip the Troll, to the fairy realm of Musfilm. They are quickly attacked by horrible monsters and dark beings. To save his friends, Bill must journey through a maze of his own memories. I'm slightly cheating here because I've already read it and it was bloody awesome. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> next up, I have a DC one, which is actually the... So it's a, it's a quarter week for DC, this one, because it's there's five release weeks uh, in June, so five Wednesdays. The fifth one is nearly always taken up with one-shots and annuals. But one of the, the annuals looks fantastic, which is Catwoman 2021 annual. This is written by Ram V. 
There are three artists on it, uh, which is sometimes a little bit of a worry, but they're three great artists. So you've got Kyle Hotz, Juan Ferreira, and uh, Fernando Blanco, who is the uh, the series regular artist. And the work Ram V's been doing in Catwoman's fantastic. And this one's actually going to delve into the origin of Father Valley. Uh, so Father Valley is a mystery. His unusual style is a hitman. His habit of keeping a Bible designated for each of his targets. His macabre and particular method of elegant savagery. His insistence on waiting until his target has reached their highest point before he strikes them down. These are all strange and enigmatic traits that have remained unexplained until now. Bear witness to Father Valley's past with the Order of Saint Dumas and his unexpected connection with Azrael to learn the method of his madness. So really looking forward to digging into that. And then my last one this week is, of course, Daredevil, because any time there's a new Daredevil issue, I am all over that. So Chip Zdarsky writing, Mike Hawthorne on art, and Marco Cicchetto on covers. So Chip Zdarsky, Marco Cicchetto, and all their collaborators have redefined the life of the man without fear. In this issue, they do it all over again, and what's more, they go a step further and up the ante. Wilson Fisk's gambit from the past few months risks appending his life and tenure as mayor. Meanwhile, Matt Murdock has to fend off a prison full of inmates who all want Daredevil dead, and the inmates aren't the only ones. This, as Electra fends for herself as a Daredevil all her own, fighting to protect Hell's Kitchen and leaving herself vulnerable in the process. So, Daredevil is just easily, for me, Marvel's most consistent ongoing, so any new week with new Daredevil is a good week. What about yourself? For me, a uh, couple of indies and a Marvel. Uh, next week we have uh, Department of Truth number 10 coming out, which is uh, chapter 8 because we had the two um, sort of, I guess, side issues. Uh, so it's called Chapter 8, A Hunter's Diary. So some fictions manifest in reality as dangerous half-formed things. The Department of Truth relies on hunters to track down and contain these wide tulpas. Uh, before they become too real, uh, obviously, we're, we're the belief of, of, of people. It's time for Cole Turner to see uh, this side of the job first time. It's time for Cole Turner to join his first Bigfoot hunt. So uh, that should be, be interesting as we explore that side of, of uh, urban myths or, or not so urban myths and, uh, and, and conspiracies. Um, one I know you're looking forward to as well, Alan, uh, the return of that Texas blood with number oh, seven, absolutely. uh, by Chris Conlon and Jacob Phillips, his new story arc ever saw 1981, uh, part one, that Texas blood returned for the brand new story arc following the traumatic and bloody conclusion of a brother's conscience. Joe Bob reminisces about one of his first cases at haunting and bizarre evening that left a boy dead, a girl missing and a cult on the loose and introduced a mysterious man called Harlan Eversall. Um, yeah, I mean, eventually we're going to find out the story of Joe Bob's brother, aren't we? So I'm wondering if, if maybe uh, we're, we're getting into that here. But uh, yeah, just love, love this book and really excited for a for a new story arc. You talk about dark. This is dark while still being quite bright. <laughs> yeah, great title, that Texas Blood. Very much looking forward to that. And uh, and last then we're looking at uh, United States of Captain America number one. Uh, it's by uh, Josh Trullo, Christopher Cantwell, uh, Dale Eaglesham on art, uh, along with uh, Jan Basildua. Um, and there's a there's a there's a raft of folk on this, but the shield has been stolen. No one understands the value of this shield like those who've wielded it. So Steve Rogers and Sam Wilson set out on a road trip across the America to chase down the thief, but instead they find the captains, everyday people from all walks of life who've taken up the mantle of Captain America to defend their communities. And for some reason, 
The shield thief wants them all dead. Can Sam and Steve get to them first? Christopher Cantwell and Dale Eaglesham lead a can't-miss miniseries to celebrate Cap's 80th anniversary, joined by a rotating cast, a rotating series of creative teams to tell the stories of each new captain, starting with Aaron Fisher, the Captain America of Railways, brought to life by Josh Trulla and uh, Jan Bazaldua. So that looks really interesting. So another quality week week lined up as ever. So Yes, sir. So, yeah, those are the titles to look forward to on the 30th of June. And, of course, we just discussed everything that was good on the 23rd of June. So that is going to do it for us this evening. So, again, this was episode 149. Do keep an eye out for what is coming up with episode 150. That should be hitting later this week. So a pleasure as always, my good man. Uh, Thank you for this evening. And I will leave you to get back to your Stendhal organization, which seems to have taken over your life the next few days. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah absolutely um no that was uh that was great fun i have to say that was uh that was great craig so uh so yes uh i will uh, i'm sure i will i will talk to you tomorrow uh, for a new comic book day that you at will some point earlier in the day and uh and uh, yeah thank you very much some great chats pleasure as always and thank you guys for listening until next time so i've been alan taylor and this has been keith miller you can find Alan in store at Coffee and Heroes and on Twitter where Alan is at Coffee and Heroes 1 and I'm a Scannison 00. Coffee and Heroes is a local comic book shop, coffee shop and community hub in Northern Ireland based at Smithfield Market in the centre of Belfast. You can find Coffee and Heroes on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email us at coffeeandheroes at hotmail.com. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel as well. The Coffee and Heroes podcast is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and through all good podcast platforms. Please like and subscribe and leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, happy reading and hope to see you in store.